This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by M. L. Cohen, Cleveland, Ohio, June 2007. Miscellaneous Essays by Thomas De Quincey, Section 3, On Murder, Considered as One of the Fine Arts, Part 2. The first murder is familiar to you all. As the inventor of murder and the father of the art, Cain must have been a man of first-rate genius. All the Cains were men of genius. Tubal Cain invented tubes, I think, or some such thing. But whatever were the originality and genius of the artist, every art was then in its infancy, and the works must be criticized with the recollection of that fact. Even Tubal's work would probably be little approved of at this day in Sheffield, and therefore if Cain, Cain Sr., I mean, it is no disparagement to say that his performance was but so-so. Milton, however, is supposed to have thought differently. By his way of relating the case, it should seem to have been rather a pet murder with him, for he retouches it with an apparent anxiety for its picturesque effect. Whereat he inwardly raged, and, as they talked, smote him into the midriff with a stone, that beat out life, he fell, and deadly pale groaned out his soul with gushing blood effused. Paradise Lost, B. 11. Upon this, Richardson, the painter, who had an eye for effect, remarks as follows in his Notes on Paradise Lost, page 497. It has been thought, says he, that Cain beat, as the common saying is, the breath out of his brother's body with a great stone. Milton gives into this with the addition, however, of a large wound. End quote. In this place it was a judicious addition for the rudeness of the weapon, unless raged and enriched by a warm, sanguinary coloring, has too much of the naked air of the savage school, as if the dead were perpetrated by a polypheme without science, premeditation, or anything but a mutton bone. However, I am chiefly pleased with the improvement, as it implies that Milton was an amateur. As to Shakespeare, there never was a better, as his description of the murdered Duke of Gloucester and Henry VI, of Duncan's, Banco's, etc., sufficiently proves. The foundation of the art having been once laid, it is pitiable to see how it slumbered without improvement for ages. In fact, I shall now be obliged to leap over all murders, sacred and profane, as utterly unworthy of notice, until long after the Christian era. Greece, even in the age of Pericles, produced no murder of the slightest merit, and Rome had too little originality of genius in any of the arts to succeed, where her model failed her. In fact, the Latin language sinks under the very idea of murder. Quote, the man was murdered. End quote. How will this sound in Latin? Interfectus est, interemptus est, which simply expresses a homicide, and hence the Christian Latinity of the Middle Ages were obliged to introduce a new word, such as the feebleness of classic conceptions never ascended to. Mudratus est, says the sublimer dialect of Gothic ages. Meantime, the Jewish school of murder kept alive whatever was yet known of the art, and gradually transferred it to the Western world. Indeed, the Jewish school was always respectable, even in the Dark Ages, as the case a few of Lincoln shows, which was honored with the approbation of Chaucer, on occasion of another performance from the same school, which he puts into the mouth of the Lady Abbess. Recurring, however, for one moment to classical antiquity, 
I cannot but think that Catiline, Claudius, and some of that coterie would have made first-rate artists, and it is on all accounts to be regretted that the prigism of Cicero robbed his country of the only chance she had for a distinction in this line. As the subject of a murder, no person could have better answered than himself. Lord, how he would have howled with panic if he had heard Cethicus under his bed. It would have been truly diverting to have listened to him, and satisfied I am, gentlemen, that he would have preferred the utile of creeping into a closet, or even into a cloaca, to the onistum of facing the bold artist. To come now to the Dark Ages, by which we that speak with precision mean par excellence the tenth century, and the times immediately before and after. These ages ought naturally to be favorable to the art of murder, as they were to church architecture, stained glass, etc., and accordingly about the latter end of this period there arose a great character in our art. I mean the old man of the mountains. He was a shining light indeed, and I need not tell you that the very word assassin is deduced from him. So keen an amateur was he that on one occasion, when his own life was attempted by a favorite assassin, he was so much pleased with the talent shown that notwithstanding the failure of the artist, who created him a duke upon the spot with remainder to the female line, and settled a pension on him for three lives. Assassination is a branch of the art which demands a separate notice, and I shall devote an entire lecture to it. Meantime, I shall only observe how odd it is that this branch of the art has flourished by fits. It never rains, but it pours. Our own age can boast of some fine specimens, and, about two centuries ago, there was a most brilliant constellation of murders in this class. I need hardly say that I allude especially to those five splendid works, the assassination of William I, of Orange, of Henry IV of France, of the Duke of Buckingham, which you will find excellently described in the letters by Mr. Ellis of the British Museum, of Gustavus Adolphus, and of Wallenstein. The King of Sweden's assassination, by the by, is doubted by many writers, Hart amongst the others, but they are wrong. He was murdered, and I consider his murder unique in its excellence, for he was murdered at noonday and on the field of battle, a feature of original conception which occurs in no other work of art that I remember. Indeed, all of these assassinations may be studied with profit by the advanced connoisseur. They are all of them exemplaria, of which one may say, Nocierna versata manu versate d'arni, especially nocturna. In these assassinations of princes and statemen, there is nothing to excite our wonder. Important changes often depend on their deaths, and, from the eminence on which they stand, they are peculiarly exposed to the aim of every artist who happens to be possessed by the craving for scenical effect. But there is another class of assassinations, which has prevailed from an early period of the seventeenth century, that really does surprise me. I mean the assassination of philosophers. Four gentlemen. It is a fact that every philosopher of eminence for the last two centuries has either been murdered or at least been very near it, insomuch that if a man calls himself a philosopher and never has his life attempted, rest assured there is nothing in him. And against Locke's philosophy in particular, I think it an unanswerable objection, if we needed any, that although he carried his throat about with him in this world for seventy-two years, no man ever condescended to cut it. As these cases of philosophers are not much known, and are generally good and well composed in their circumstances, I shall here read an excursus on that subject, chiefly by way of showing my own learning. The first great philosopher of the seventeenth century, if we accept Galileo, was Descartes. 
And if ever one could say of a man that he was all but murdered, murdered within an inch, one must say it of him. The case was this, as reported by Balbier in his Vidame de Cartes, tome 1, page 102-3. In the year 1621, when Descartes might be about twenty-six years old, he was touring about as usual, for he was as restless as a hyena. And, coming up to Elbe, either Gluckstadt or Hamburg, he took shipping for East Friesland. What he could want in East Friesland no man has ever discovered, and perhaps he took this into consideration himself. For on reaching Emden he resolved to sail instantly for West Friesland, and being very impatient of delay he hired a bark with a few mariners to navigate it. No sooner had he got out to sea than he made a pleasing discovery, that is, that he had shut himself up in a den of murderers. His crew, says M. Ballet, he soon found to be desclarat, not amateurs, gentlemen, as we are, but professional men, the height of whose ambition at the moment was to cut his throat. But the story is too pleasing to be abridged. I shall give it, therefore, accurately from the French of his biographer. Quote, M. Descartes had no company but that of his servant, with whom he was conversing in French. The sailors, who took him for a foreign merchant rather than a cabaret, concluded that he must have money about him. Accordingly, they came to a resolution by no means advantageous to his purse. There is this difference, however, between sea robbers and the robbers in forests, for the latter may, without hazard, spare the lives of their victims, whereas the other cannot put a passenger on shore in such a case without running a risk of being apprehended. The crew of M. Descartes arranged their measures with a view to evade any danger of that sort. They observed that he was a stranger from a distance, without acquaintance in the country, and that nobody would take any trouble to inquire about him in case he should never come to hand. Prens, quad il vendoit el Think, gentlemen, of these Friesland dogs discussing a philosopher as if he were a puncheon of rum. Quote, his temper, they remarked, was very mild and patient, and judging from the gentleness of his deportment and the courtesy with which he treated themselves, that he could be nothing more than some green young man, they concluded that they should have all the easier task in disposing of his life. They made no scruple to discuss the whole matter in his presence, as not supposing that he understood any other language than that in which he conversed with his servant and the amount of their deliberation was to murder him, then throw him into the sea and divide his spoils. End quote. Excuse my laughing, gentlemen, but the fact is I always do laugh when I think of this case. Two things about it seem so droll. One is the horrid panic, or funk, as the men of Eaton call it, in which Descartes must have found himself upon hearing this regular drama sketched for his own death, funeral, succession, and administration to his effects. But another thing, which seems to me still more funny about this affair, is that if these Friesland hounds had been game, we should have no Cartesian philosophy, and how we could have done without that, considering the world of books it has produced, I leave to any respectable trunk-maker to declare. However, to go on, spite of his enormous funk, Descartes showed fight, and by that means awed these anti-Cartesian rascals. Quote, finding, says M. Ballet, that the matter was no joke. M. Descartes leaped upon his feet in a trice, a stern discerned countenance that these cravens had never looked for, and addressing them in their own language threatened to run them through on the spot if they dared offer him any insult. Certainly, gentlemen, this would have been an honor far above the merits of such inconsiderable rascals, to be spitted like larks upon a Cartesian sword, and therefore I am glad M. Descartes did not rob the gallows by executing his threat, especially as he could not possibly have bought his vessel to port after he had murdered his crew. 
so that he must have continued to cruise forever in the Zuter Zee, and would probably have been mistaken by sailors for the flying Dutchman, homeward bound. Quote, the spirit which M. Descartes manifested, end quote, says biographer, quote, had the effect of magic on these wretches. The suddenness of their consternation struck their minds with a confusion which blinded them to their advantage, and they conveyed him to his destination as peaceably as he could desire. End quote. Possibly, gentlemen, you may fancy that, on the model of Caesar's address to his poor ferryman, Caesarum vius et fortun aegis, M. Descartes need only to have said, Dogs, you cannot cut my throat, for you carry Descartes and his philosophy, and might safely have defied them to do their worst. A German emperor had the same notion, when being cautioned to keep out of the way of a cannoning, he replied, Tut, man, did you ever hear of a cannonball that killed an emperor? As to an emperor, I cannot say, but a less thing has suffered to smash a philosopher, and the next great philosopher of Europe undoubtedly was murdered. This was Spinoza. I know very well the common opinion about him is that he died in his bed. Perhaps he did, but he was murdered for all that, and this I shall prove by a book published at Brussels in the year 1731 entitled La Via de Spinoza, par M. John Sullerus with many additions from an Emma's life by one of his friends. Spinoza died on the 21st February 1677, being then little more than 44 years old. This of itself looks suspicious, and M. Jean admits that a certain expression in the Emma's life of him would warrant the conclusion, que ce mort n'a pas tout fait naturel. Living in a damp country, and a sailor's country like Holland, he may be thought to have indulged a good deal in grog, especially in punch, which was then nearly discovered footnote. June 1, 1675, drink part of three pools of punch, quote, a liquor very strange to me, end quote, says the Reverend Mr. Harry Chong in his diary lately published. In a note on this passage, a reference is made to Fry's travels in the East Indies, 1672, of speaks of, quote, that enervating liquor called pounch, which is in stand for five, from five ingredients, end quote. Made thus, it seems the medical men call it diapente, if with four only, diesteron. No doubt it was its evangelical name that recommended it to the Reverend Mr. Chiang. End footnote. Undoubtedly, he might have done so, but the fact is that he did not. M. Jean calls him, quote, extremement sober and son bois et son monja. And then some wild stories were afloat about his using the juice of a mandragora and opium. Yet neither of these articles appeared in his druggist bill. Living, therefore, with such sobriety, how is it possible that he should die a natural death at forty-four? Here is biographer's account, quote, Sunday, morning of the 21st of February, before it was church time, Smoza came down the stairs and conversed with the master and mistress of the house, end quote. At this time, therefore, perhaps ten o'clock on Sunday morning, you see that Spinoza was alive and pretty well. But it seems, quote, he had summoned from Amsterdam a certain physician whom, says the biographer, I shall not otherwise point out to notice than by these two letters, L.M. This L.M. had directed the people of the house to purchase an ancient cock, and to have him boiled forthwith, in order that Spinoza might take some broth about noon, which in fact he did, and ate some of the old cock with good appetite, after the landlord and his wife had returned from church. Quote, in the afternoon, L.M. stayed alone with Spinoza, the people of the house having returned to church, on coming out from which they learnt with much surprise that Spinoza had died about three o'clock in the presence of L.M., who took his departure for Amsterdam the same evening by the night boat, 
without paying the least attention to the deceased. No doubt he was the readier to dispense with these duties, as he had possessed himself of a ducatoon and a small quantity of silver, together with a silver-hafted knife, and had absconded with his pillage. End quote. Here you see, gentlemen, the murderer's plane, and the manner of it. It was L. M. murder Spinoza for his money. Poor S. was an invalid, meager and weak, as no blood was observed. L. M. no doubt threw him down and smothered him with pillows, the poor man being already half-suffocated by his infernal dinner. But who was L. M.? It surely never could be Lindley Murray, for I saw him at York in 1835, and besides, I do not think he would do such a thing, at least not to a brother grammarian. For you know, gentlemen, that Spinoza wrote a very respectable Hebrew grammar. Hobbes, but why, or on what principle I never could understand, was not murdered. This was a capital oversight of the professional men in the seventeenth century, because in every light he was a fine subject for murder, except indeed that he was lean and skinny, for I can prove that he had money, and, what is very funny, he had no right to make the least resistance, for according to himself, irresistible power creates the very highest species of right so that it is rebellion of the blackest eye to refuse to be murdered when a competent force appears to murder you. However, gentlemen, though he was not murdered, I am happy to assure you that by his own account he was three times very near being murdered. The first time was in the spring of 1640, when he pretends to have circulated a little manuscript on the king's behalf against the Parliament. He never could produce this manuscript, by the by, but he says that, quote, had not his majesty dissolved the Parliament, end quote, in May, Quote, it had brought him into danger of his life. End quote. Dissolving the Parliament, however, was of no use, for in November of the same year the Long Parliament assembled, and Hobbes, a second time, fearing he should be murdered, ran away to France. This looks like the madness of John Dennis, who thought that Louis the Fourteenth would never make peace with Queen Anne unless he were given up to his vengeance, and actually ran away from the seacoast in that belief. In France, Hobbes managed to take care of his throat pretty well for ten years but he didn't at the time, by way of paying court to Cromwell, he published his Leviathan. The old coward now began to funk horribly for the third time. He fancied the swords of the cavaliers were constantly at his throat, recalling how they had served at Parliament ambassadors and at the Hague in Madrid. Turn, says he, in his dog-Latin life of himself, tum venit in mentem me dorisent and asham, tanquem proscripto terror uberg adrat. And accordingly he ran home to England. Now certainly it is very true that a man deserving a cudgeling for writing Leviathan, and two or three cudgelings for writing a pentameter ending so villainously as, quote, terror ubique adorat, end quote. But no man ever thought him worthy of anything beyond cudgeling, and in fact the whole story is a bounce of his own. For, in the most abusive letter which he wrote, quote, to a learned person, end quote, meaning Wallace the mathematician, he gives quite another account of the matter, and says, page 8, he ran home, quote, because he would not trust his safety with the French clergy, end quote, insinuating that he was likely to be murdered for his religion, which would have been a high joke indeed, Tom's being brought to the stake for religion. Bounce or not bounce, however, certain it is that Hobbes, to the end of his life, feared that somebody would murder him. This is proved by the story I am going to tell you. It is not from a manuscript, but, as Mr. Coleridge said, it is good as a manuscript, for it comes from a book now entirely forgotten, that is, quote, the creed of Mr. Hobbes examined in a conference between him and a student of divinity, end quote, published about ten years before Hobbes's death. The book is anonymous, but it was written by Tennyson. 
the same who, about thirty years after, succeeded Tillotson as Archbishop of Canterbury. The introductory anecdote is as follows, quote, a certain divine, it seems, no doubt Tennyson himself, took an annual tour of one month to different parts of the island, and one of these excursions, 1670, he visited the Preak of Derbyshire, partly in consequence of Hobbes's description of it. Being in that neighborhood, he could not but pay a visit to Buxton, and at the very moment of his arrival he was fortunate enough to find a party of gentlemen dismounting at the inn door, amongst whom was a long, thin fellow, who turned out to be no less a person than Mr. Hobbes who probably had ridden over from Chatsworth. Meeting so great a line, a tourist in search of the picturesque could no less than present himself in the character of boar. And luckily for this scheme, two of Mr. Hobbs's companions were suddenly summoned away by express, so that for the rest of his stay at Buxton he had Leviathan entirely to himself, and had the honor of bowsing with him in the evening. Hobbes, it seems, at first showed a good deal of stiffness, for he was shy of divines, but this wore off and he became very sociable and funny, and they agreed to go to the bath together. How Tennyson could venture to gamble on the same water with Leviathan I cannot explain, but so it was they frolicked about like two dolphins, though Hobbes must have been as old as the hills, and, quote, in those intervals where they abstained from swimming and plunging themselves, as diving, they discoursed of many things related to the bath of the ancients and the origin of springs. When they had in this manner passed away an hour, they stepped out of the bath, and having dried and clothed themselves, they sat down in expectation of such a supper as the place afforded, designing to refresh themselves like the filet, and rather to reason than to drink profoundly. But in this innocent intention they were interrupted by the disturbance arising from a little quarrel, in which some of the ruder people in the house were for a short time engaged. At this Mr. Hobbs seemed much concerned, though he was at some distance from the persons. End quote. And why was he concerned, gentlemen? No doubt you fancy, from some benign and disinterested love of peace and harmony, worthy of an old man of philosopher. But listen, quote, For a while he was not composed, but related it once or twice to himself, with a low and careful tone, how Sextus Rocius was murdered after supper by the Balni Palatine. Of such general extent is that remark of Cicero in relation to Epicurus the atheist, of whom he observed that he of all men dreaded most those things which he contemned, death and the gods, end quote. Merely because it was supper-time, and in the neighborhood of a bath, Mr. Hobbes must have the fate of Sextus Rocius. What logic was there in this, unless to a man who was always dreaming of murder? Here was Leviathan, no longer afraid of the daggers of English cavaliers or French clergy, but, quote, frightened from his property, end quote, by a row in the alehouse between some honest clodhoppers of Derbyshire, whom his own gaunt scarecrow of a person that belonged to quite another century would have frightened out of their wits. Malabranc, it will give you great pleasure to hear, was murdered. The man who murdered him is well known. It was Bishop Barclay. The story is familiar, though hitherto not put into a proper light. Barclay, when a young man, went to Paris and called on Pierre Malabranc. He found him in his cell cooking. Cooks have ever been a genus irritable, author still more so. Malabranc was both. A dispute arose, and the old father, warm already, became warmer. Culinary and metaphysical irritations united to derange his liver. He took to his bed and died. Such is the common version of the story. Quote, so the whole ear of Denmark is abused. End quote. The fact is that the matter was hushed up out of consideration for Barclay, who, as Pope remarked, had, quote, every virtue under heaven, end quote. 
else it was well known that Barclay, feeling himself nettled by the waspishness of the old Frenchman, squared at him, a turn-up was the consequence. Malabranque was floored in the first round, the conceit was wholly taken out of him, and he would have perhaps have given in, but Barclay's blood was now up, and he insisted on the old Frenchman's retracting his doctrine of the occasional causes. The vanity of the man was too great for this, and he fell a sacrifice to the impetuosity of Irish youth, combined with his own absurd obstinacy. Leibniz, being every way superior to Malebranche, one might a fortiori have counted on his being murdered, which, however, was not the case. I believe he was nettled at this neglect, and fed himself insulted by the security in which he passed his days. In no other way can I explain his conduct at the latter end of his life, when he chose to grow very avaricious, and to hoard up large sums of gold which he kept at his own house. This was at Vienna where he died, and letters are still in existence, describing the immeasurable anxiety which he entertained for his throat. Still, his ambition, for being attempted at least, was so great that he would not forego the danger. A late English pedagogue of Birmingham manufacture, that is, Dr. Parr, took a more selfish course in the same circumstances. He had amassed a considerable quantity of gold and silver plate, which was for some time deposited in his bedroom at his parsonage house, Hatton. But growing every day more afraid of being murdered, which he knew that he could not stand, and to which, indeed, he never had the slightest pretension, he transferred the whole to the Hatton blacksmith, conceiving no doubt that the murder of a blacksmith would form more lightly on the Salus Republicae than that of a pedagogue. But I have heard this greatly disputed, and it seems now generally agreed, that one good horseshoe is worth about two and a quarter spittle sermons. As Leibniz, though not murdered, may be said to have died partly of the fear that he should be murdered, and partly of the vexation that he was not, Kant, on the other hand, who had no ambition in that way, had a narrower escape from a murderer than any man we read of, except Descartes. So absurdly does fortune throw about her favors. The case is told, I think, in an anonymous life of this very great man. For health's sake, Kant imposed upon himself at one time, a walk of six miles every day along a high road. This fact becoming known to a man who had his private reasons for committing murder, at the third milestone from Königsberg he waited for his, quote, intended, end quote who came up to time as duly as a mail-coach. But for an accident, Kant was a dead man. However, on considerations of, quote, morality, end quote, it happened that the murderer preferred a little child whom he saw playing in the road to the old transcendentalist. This child he murdered, and thus it happened that Kant escaped. Such is the German account of the matter, but my opinion is that the murderer was an amateur, who felt how little would be gained to the cause of good taste by murdering an old, arid, and adjust metaphysician. There was no room for display, as the man could not possibly look more like a mummy when dead than he had done alive. End On Murder, Considered as One of the Fine Arts, Part 2